This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of John? And is that legend sitting down there? Dude, all the way from Virginia, a theological rap artist, very rare right now, theologically sound hip-hop. Google L-E-G-I-N if you want to do something while I'm preaching. You can learn about legend. <laughs> you might be, actually might be better. So, so John 8, when you get to John 8, you're going to see something if you haven't seen it already, which is this little uh, parenthetical, which is that this was not in the original text, Okay. Uh, if you've got the nearly inspired version, like I do, the NIV, you, you'll see it says it right there. Some of you, I think the ESV says it right there. Um, I don't have time this morning. Uh, by the way, there's an amazing teaching from Community Bible Church up the road where a guy, I think it's August of 2022 or something like that, he actually did a great teaching on why we can trust the Bible, totally worth your time. Uh, but I'll suffice it to say this. One of the things and one of the ways that we know that we can trust what we have in our hands is because we have access to transcripts that are so old and so close to the origination that we know what was in there and what wasn't. And the the little differences, the little nuance here or there in a book this thick would fill up a page and a half. And of all of those, this one included, we know... Like, for instance, we know this one, scholars who have studied this say that this was not likely written by John, but it was entirely likely, probable, almost guaranteed that this was written by early church and added by the early church. And when you look at it, it does not conflict with, it does not contradict anything that we know about Jesus. It just confirms what we already know, whether it was with Mary Magdalene or with Peter, that Jesus' willingness to take sinners and not marginalize them, but save them. So that's why I feel very, very comfortable teaching from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And it starts like this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and by the way, in uh, just, uh, just over a week and a half, we're going to be at the Mount of Olives with a group of uh, conduit people in Israel. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down, wrote on the ground, and at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. 
with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one accused you? Has no one condemned you, as NIV says? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are approaching your word this morning, let us approach it with humility. Not as an academic exercise, but a Holy Spirit inflowing from your word to us. Lord, be with our brothers and sisters in this room and with our kids down in the hallway with Hannah and Joey and a whole team that are just investing in them in profound uh, and beautiful ways. Father, we are just one church, one church in a city with hundreds of them, lifting up your name. Lord, I do lift up our friends at Community Bible Church up in Brentwood. Lord, they've been faithful. They've faced a lot, and man, they've just been faithfully pressing through with with your word and, and your courage. Lord, be with us here today. Be the lamp, be the light. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus is confronting someone, being confronted by someone. Both are happening here. And it's interesting because this is the thing about adultery. And by the way, adultery in this passage very specifically refers to not just uh, unfaithfulness in marriage, but sex before marriage, and just any sex outside of the confines of a natural-born man, natural-born woman, that, that's what this, uh, this word adultery in this verse, that's the phrase that he's talking about here. Now, the question is, why, why is that such a big deal? If you've been around the church or if you've been in... Uh, like my age, like everybody, like that. we all knew that and we sort of take it for granted. But if you're in your 20s, maybe your 30s, the culture right now is saying, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. Is, you know, you want to try out a few first before you get married. How will you know? All these logical conclusions, right, of what, what sexual relationships, what relationships in general should be like. It's interesting because, as is always the case with God's commands for us, he's not a cosmic buzzkill. He's not just trying to rain on my parade. No, his commands in these ways are actually for our, for our flourishing, about relationship inside of a marriage. There's something that he meant for that for us that was the way that it was meant to be. And every time... Every time, whether it's sociologists, scientists, if if they're taking an honest look at the way humans interact with each other, it never ever contradicts God's commands and his laws that were created thousands of years ago. You see, some people say, well, this is an ancient book. How can we trust that it's for us today today? 
without thinking that we are ancient creatures with ancient souls that have not changed. So the ancientness of this book speaks to the ancientness of humanity that has not changed at all from thousands of years until today. But listen to what this study says that the Wall Street Journal published again. This has been going on for a long time. This uh, 85 years and counting, by the way. Harvard study of adult development has attracted uh, an original group, 724 men and more than 1,300 of their male and female descendants over three generations, following the same group over three generations, asking thousands of questions, taking hundreds of measurements to find what really keeps people healthy and happy. Through all the years of studying these lives, one one crucial factor stands out for the consistency and power of its ties to physical health, mental health, and longevity. Contrary to what many people might think, it's not career achievement, exercise, or a healthy diet. Don't get us wrong. These things matter. But one thing continuously demonstrates its broad and enduring importance, good relationships. In fact, close personal connections are significant enough that if we had to take all 85 years of the Harvard study, boil it down to a single principle for living, one life investment that is supported by similar findings across a variety of other studies, it would be this. Good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. And then he drops this little bombshell. If you want to make one decision to ensure your own health and happiness, it should be to cultivate warm relationships of all kinds. For my uh, brothers and sisters who are uh, Instagram influencers, or if you follow Instagram influencers online that are teaching you about success in life and 10xing your business and how you're going to find happiness with this. Think about how many of them actually are following the data. How many of them say that relationships are the number one. But because they're even Harvard, a secular organization, they buried the lead. Because <laughs> it wasn't just relationships. Yes, relationships. But a very specific kind of relationship, that is what is the factor that is over and over again. 2008, we telephoned the wives of husbands, the Harvard study of couples in their 80s, every night for eight nights. And I guess in that age, you got nothing else to do but answer the phone. <laughs> right? I'm thinking, how'd they get them to answer the phone? I never answer the phone if I don't know the number. We spoke to each partner separately and asked them a series of questions about their days. We wanted to know how they felt physically that day, what kinds of activities they had been involved in, if they had needed or received emotional support, how much time they spent with their spouse and with other people. The simple measure of time spent with others proved quite important because on a day-to-day -day basis, this measurement was clearly linked with happiness on days when these men and women spent more time in the company of others, they were happier. In, listen, in particular, when I say they buried the lead, this should have been the headline, 
In particular, the more time they spent with their partners, of course, we've got to be politically correct, they can't say spouse, the more happiness they reported. This was true across all couples, but especially for those in satisfying relationships. And it ends that little paragraph with, their happy marriages seem to have a protective effect. And it goes on. How can loneliness be so physically harmful when it's a subjective experience? Answering that question is easier if we understand the biological roots of the problem. I want you to know I'm going to point something out here. When you're reading, especially in uh, legacy media organizations, watch how language is used as if it were fact. Human beings have, quote, evolved to be social and the biological processes that encourage social behavior that protect us. When we feel isolated, our bodies and brains react in ways, listen, that are designed to help us survive that isolation. Do you see what I'm saying? Evolved and designed, well, you gotta pick one. Uh, We were designed for this. It started in the garden. Relationship was born in Trinity, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Elohim, let us make man in our image. Relationship was where God exists. Relationship is what he desires with us, and it's what he desires with us. But listen to this, and I, I, I really want you to hear this. How can loneliness be so physically harmful when it's a subjective experience? He goes down here. I'm going to finish it out with this. 50,000 years ago, being alone was dangerous. And an isolated person's body and brain would have gone into temporary survival mode. Uh, let, me, let me sum it up for you. If, if you are in Abram's time and you are in a nomadic tribe and Abraham's out you know, finding something, beating it with a club and bringing it home to eat it. If you're home by yourself, God designed you as a female to be alert because your husband is out so you don't get much sleep when your husband's out of town. Like, there's something the way that we're wired that we're designed to be with each other in safety. But what I wanted you to see was up at the top of this paragraph. This finding makes sense in light of the growing evidence that lonely, if you didn't see this, loneliness is associated with, listen, a greater sensitivity to pain, suppression of the immune system, diminished brain function, and less effective sleep. Research has shown that for older people, loneliness, listen, is twice as unhealthy as obesity, and chronic loneliness increases a person's odds of death in any given year by 26%. When God said, Jesus said, right, for this reason will a man, right, leave his father and mother Will he cleave unto, right? They'll cleave to each other. He designed us for marriage, not just because it was a way to make you miserable. Now, some of you are like, well, it's not working out so good for me, but Shannon and I have been married for 28 years. And in the early years, I mean, I'm dumber than a bag of hammers. When she, you know, she'd be feeling something, and I'm like, "What does that mean? What do you feel?" Like, or I would say something even more dumb. Like she'd be sad or mad about something, and I'd want her to know what I actually did, because then she could be allowed to be mad about that, not about what she thought I did. 
Sorry, I thought that we, I thought at least I'd get an amen, right? But no, all y'all know, that's a moron, that's dumb. Because what I was doing was making her lonely because she knew what I thought about everything and didn't know what I felt about anything. That we were made to be not side by side locking arms, but face to face in relationship with each other. That's what God designed for marriage. Now, why am I bringing that up in this context? Because I want you to show that when, when they talk about adultery, when, when the, God, this is so serious that God would say, thou shalt not. This wasn't one of the 619 extra added on bonus laws by the Pharisees. This is top 10, right? Right there with don't murder. Why would that be so serious? Because God designed you and I for intimacy with another person and long obedience in the same direction. If Shannon and I would have quit 15 years ago, 10 years ago, we would not experience the intimacy and the relationship that we have now. There were years of loneliness, but we pushed through and found our way to where we are today. Are we perfect? No. I can introduce you to our marriage counselor and he'll tell you. Actually, can he tell him? Probably can't. Anyway, I'll, I'll give him permission. I mean, look, I'm not saying that this is any about any of us getting our marriages perfectly, but what I am saying is that we are more healthy today than we were 28 years ago, and I can, listen to me, 100% tell you that both of our health, our immune systems, are way better than they were 15 years ago. How many times have you been to a doctor, right, and you got a, uh, I've got an inflammation, I got this, and he's like, hey, you know what? Go build a relationship with your spouse. No, they want to throw money at it. They want to throw medication at it. And all you're doing is medicating what God wants to heal. Not that you, look, if you're in medication right now, do not quit it, don't, please. Not without your doctor. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that your doctor is trying to heal a physiological problem and Jesus wants to heal a spiritual problem. Those are two different things. Right. Okay? Now, meanwhile, back in the temple, a woman has been brought in by a group of lawyers and religious leaders, not because they cared about the law. They said they did, but they didn't. They, they didn't care about this woman's emotional well-being or her immune system. They didn't care about whether or not she had been tricked or trapped. All they cared about was trying to trick Jesus. But what it is now is you've got a woman who is being brought in and accused, not falsely, correctly, about a sin that she had committed. And in this room, varying degrees of us are currently in some kind of a situation where whether you're, look, maybe you're right now in the middle of a an extramarital relationship, okay? Maybe right now you're living with your significant other, but you didn't want to get married, so we're going we're gonna to try this out like you're test driving a car. Maybe, maybe you're just spending a lot of time looking at stuff at night that you shouldn't. The question is, what do I do with that as a follower of Jesus? 
There's two choices that they had here. One, take it to the law and have the law deal with it. Two, take it to the cross and have the cross deal with it. And the third then is if to let the cross deal with it, then what do I do with it when I leave the cross? And that's what I want to talk about in the few minutes that we have today. You see, they brought her to the cross. Am I there yet? I'm behind. <laughs> they brought her to the law. You think about this, this is what happened. The Pharisees, the lawyers, whatever, brought her to the law. They brought her to the, this is what it says. And by the way, the lawyers were totally botching this because they, just like most of our modern day cancel culture, Twitter mobs with their keyboards and, and their screens, they don't have, there's nowhere pitchforks and torches, right? It's just keyboards and screens. Now that's the Twitter mobs. But they've brought her to this, falsely accusing her because the law that they're quoting, which is from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, actually says it's the man and the woman. And you'll notice who is missing from this equation. They didn't care about the law. They were trying to trick Jesus. But here she is. She's now confronted with the law. The law says you can't do this. The law says you must be punished for doing this. What do you do now? I mentioned a minute ago that some of you may be in this room right now, and if not now, you'll be tempted to. Uh, it's, 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 is it not the most normal thing in the world right now? People think you're in fact crazy if you've got a relationship with a significant other, and it's, it's maybe I'm, I'm kind of liking her, I'm kind of liking him. Well, before we make a commitment, let's move in together and see how this works before we commit for marriage. In fact, if you don't do that in this current culture, you're considered nuts. You're considered nuts because why would you do that? Why would you make that kind of a commitment when it could go south? Now again, that's what Twitter tells you. That's what TikTok tells you. That's what literally 99% of the Netflix movies that you're streaming tell you. But what does the data tell you? The data tells you that you are 46% more likely to get divorced if you live together first before you get married. Those numbers are incontrovertible. That is, you may or may not have ever heard that before, but that's what the data tells us. And all the data is doing here is what it just did a minute ago, which is just confirm that God's ways were not arbitrary and capricious, but a recognition of who we are as humans and what we need to thrive. Right. I mean, young lady, if he's saying, let's just move in first. Do you know what he's really saying? just in case I find a new one. I have less paperwork if we have to end this. That's not a commitment. That's a test drive. And the Bible, the Bible respects you way too much for you to put yourself in that position to be like it's cheerleading tryouts. 46% more likely that you will get a divorce if you live together before you are married. If you didn't know that before, you know it now. 
And I might add that in this room, a room I don't know everybody in this room, but I want to put it out there to say that if that's you right now, I'm not mad at you, and neither is God. You are welcome here, if that's you right now. You're welcome. And I say this about young people. We live in a world right now where there are many of us who are in our 30s, 40s, and you are single again. Maybe it was a decision you made or maybe it was a decision you had no control over, but now you're like, I've been there. I don't want to do this again. So I'm not talking to just 20-year-olds. I'm talking to 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds, right? That if, if this is you and you are in that situation and you're currently living with someone that is not your spouse, I want you to first hear me say that that is a sin, and that Jesus has all the forgiveness and the grace in the world for you, 100%. But what do you do with that sin? You bring it to the law? Because let me tell you what the law is gonna tell you. The law is gonna tell you it's wrong. The law is gonna tell you don't do that. The law is gonna tell you shame on you. And what the law does to you is what it did to this woman, puts you in hiding, puts you in shame, Put you in a place where I can't possibly let them know that that's who I am because I will be disowned, I'll be cast out, I'll be... That's what the law does to you. And I want us as a church family, if you're new here, you may not know this, and if you are, you may not know this either, but I want us to be a place where if you are that part of your life and you're seeking the Lord and you're, you're welcome here, make them feel welcome here. We, it is not our, listen, we're about to get to the don't throw the first stone part, okay? Spoiler alert. I, I just want you to hear from me say that yes, it's a sin and yes, if you bring it to the law, what the law is gonna do is shame you, it's going to push you down and it's not gonna give you the power to overcome it and that is true of whether of whether you're cohabitating before your marriage. It's true of whether you're struggling with pornography. It's true if you're in an adulterous relationship. It's true if you have an anger problem. It's true if you have an overeating problem. Whatever it is, whatever sin it is, if you take it to the law, the law is gonna beat you over the head. The law is gonna shame you and isolate you and marginalize you and remind you of the truth that you are not good enough. And neither am I. Now you can live the rest of your life like that and be miserable and depressed and sick and your immune systems, you know, all, all these things that are happening to you physiologically, spiritually, emotionally, or you can bring your sin to the cross. Those are our only two options. Because look, even if you don't believe in the cross and you don't believe in Christianity, you are still bringing your sin to somebody's law. And man, the misery of that is if you're bringing it to the law of culture or of social media, that law changes like by the minute. What law do you get to? That was just fine like 10 minutes ago and now I can't? I didn't, I didn't know about pronouns until like five minutes ago, and now I'm suddenly being, now the law, now the Twitter mob's gonna come after me. Like if, the, if you are submitting yourself to a law, 
like that, you're going to be submitting your law to a changes all the time. You're going to be submitting yourself to a law of a false religion. You're going to submit yourself to the law of Moses. But either way, you're submitting yourself to some law. And I would like to suggest to you, don't do that. Submit yourself. Bring your sin to the cross. And here's what's different about that. Jesus here is caught between the law of Moses and the life of this woman. This was a brilliant trap unless the one they were trapping was the one that was going to take those sins on himself. They went for check and Jesus went for checkmate. Because Jesus, the cross was Jesus' way of saying, I'm not just going to wink and nod at Darren's sin. I know what he did. But the cross was his way of being able to, I'm going to cancel Darren's sin without canceling him. And I love this picture that he does here. It says that he, he bent down and he wrote in the, in the ground with, with his finger and he wrote in the sand. And the question of, that the ages, everybody asked, like, what did he write? What did he write? The answer is, I don't know. But could I give you a what he might have wrote? This is a, as uh, Michael Easley says, this is a, it seems to me, don't, don't turn there, write it down and go later. Jeremiah 17, verse 13, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those that are around Jesus right now, they're, they're, they're all being put to shame. They're rejecting him. But listen, those who turn away from you will be written, listen, will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Jesus had just talked about the spring of living water. Literally, had just talked about it. And the next thing you know, he's writing in the sand with his finger. Maybe he's writing, maybe, Dar Darren, scoundrel, cheater, liar. Maybe he's writing someone's name in the hotel room that they were at last night. Someone's name and the website they had just visited. All I know is this, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they went away until none was left but Jesus. And Jesus had just said, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. The only one qualified there to pick up a stone and stone her was Jesus and he didn't pick up a stone. No, because the same hands that wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery, the same hands in Daniel that wrote on the wall, you have been found in the scales and you have been found wanting, meaning that the scales of the good works versus the bad works, and you got way more bad than good, you're, you don't weigh enough for that, you're, you're a host. The same hands that wrote the names and the sins, maybe, those same hands would then, not long after this, have nails driven through them. Paying the price for my sin. Because now, that same hand writes my name, your name, in a book of life. Right. That hand, John says, I am safe in that hand. No one can pluck me from it. 
Gang, take your sin to the law all you want to. God still loves you. You can take as many laps around that crazy train as you want to, but he'll meet you at the cross and take those sins away for you. But I would be remiss if I ended it with where most people want to stop, which is neither do I condemn you. But that's not all he said. He said, now go and sin no more. Leave your sin at the cross. Now go and sin no more. You see, Jesus wasn't saying to her, you're not guilty. He's saying you are guilty. He didn't let her off the hook as a victim. We're all victims in some way. We've all been victimized in some way. Some have experienced horrendous victimization, and I do not, please, I do not want to discredit that. But Jesus doesn't leave room for victimhood because he wants to bring you to victory. And if you make your identity out of your victim, you can camp there, but Jesus wants to move you from victim into victory. He didn't leave her to say, hey, you know what, it's okay. You, what, you, you, this guy had power over you. He, you know, he couldn't stop, whatever. Whatever we would, might say in our modern vernacular, he didn't give her that because she needed the same forgiveness that her abuser needed. She needed the same forgiveness that I need. We all need the same forgiveness. And so Jesus is saying to all of us in here, go and sin no more because we have sinned and we get the chance now to say, I'm gonna leave this behind at the cross. There are those here this morning that say, yeah, that's great, Darren. But man, I keep blowing it. I keep struggling with it. Am I unforgiven now? You see, grace wasn't just the starting point of your salvation. Like it's not grace, 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 and now, and now it's works. Like grace was the starting points, but now you gotta get back to work. No, it's grace. All the way down. Right. All the way down. And I'm gonna give you just a little tip here, especially if you're young, but if you're old as well. There's a difference between struggling with your sin and making your sin your identity. Paul over and over again in the New Testament uses the words about struggling. I'm struggling with this, wrestling with this, I'm struggling with this. You are still in a place where you are hearing from the Father and your struggle is not with yourself, your struggle is get it back to the cross. And then there are others and when you see an idolater, a murderer will not enter the kingdom of heaven, do you see the difference with that? Not someone who has murdered, not someone who has committed idolatry, someone who is an idolater, someone who is a murderer, someone who is whatever, it's one of the things that identity politics is so bad because it is literally saying to you, like I'm old enough to remember when pride was a sin. You know, it wasn't that long ago. But if the pride now is this is my identity, I am giving up, I was born this way, I can't help it, that is making your sin your identity. And brothers and sisters, be very, very careful with that. Don't give up the struggle. Go back to Romans. Read Romans chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight. That whole chapter seven, why do I do the things I don't wanna do? I do the things I don't wanna do, the things I don't wanna do, I do. 
I mean, it's literally Thursday for me. <laughs> Towards the end of chapter 7, he says, who will rescue me from this wretched life, this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Amen. None. If your life looks like Romans 7, it also looks like Romans 8. If your life looks like Romans 1, where the struggle is over, I'm not fighting anymore, it's going to look like Romans 1, and that is a bad path to be on. My brothers and sisters, please don't leave here today stuck in Romans 1 when Romans 8 awaits you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. We're going to have our prayer warriors down here in a moment. If you've never experienced that life with Christ before, someone would pray with you this morning. If, you, if you've never had that moment, I, I want to invite you, Jesus. I want to trust in you, Christ. I'm tired of this thing that I've been... I want to trust in you. Someone's going to be here willing to pray for you. If, if you're in the middle, you're, I'm a believer, I've been a believer for years, and I can't beat this thing, I can't, like, I, I'm still Romans 7, Romans 7, Romans 7. Someone's willing to pray with you. You see, Jesus didn't just give us freedom from the penalty of sin, he gave us power over sin. And maybe some of you all this morning need to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that dwells in you to give you power over that sin. Maybe that's you today. Prayer warriors are going to be waiting for you. Stand to your feet. I'm going to pray for you before you go. Thank you for your patience. If anybody is feeling shame right now, quit it. The gospel is not shame on you, it is shame off you. Right. Receive yeah. that today. Yeah. And come receive that freedom in Christ today. Heavenly Father, as our prayer warriors are coming to the front, ready to receive and pray for our brothers and sisters, I pray that you'll move in the hearts and the minds of us here today. Lord, forgive us. Lord, stop us from the, there's a crazy train of sin and law. Get us away from the law and take us to the cross this morning. Give us the power to leave that sin behind at the cross. We're so grateful, Jesus. You gave us the example of what you'll do for a woman literally caught in the act of adultery and you, sent, you didn't send her away. You forgave her. You said, go and sin no more. That is the, you'll do that for us. Let us this morning be reminded you are our example, not the lawyers, not the Pharisees, you, Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.